Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. I have an announcement. You guys know how much fun this is for me. This is like the most fun I can imagine. Although actually, I attended a talk today where someone was was talking about a new book that she published on dogs. It was a totally wild Zoom event. I absolutely loved it. It was super fun. It's almost as fun as this. This is so fun for me. So thank you all again for making this possible. I've been looking forward to this all day. In fact, around like 11 a.m., I was like, all right, can it be six o'clock now? Like, I'm ready. I'm ready to do this. So this is a great thrill, um, even though I know that, uh, that Lacan is not easy. But my goal here is to make his stuff as accessible and useful to you as possible. Some of you are training to be scholars. Some of you already are scholars. Some of you are clinicians. Some of you are training to be clinicians. I want this stuff to be as useful to you as possible across the board. So as you know, I'm available via email. I'm also available here in these forums to talk about whatever comes to mind. If there's a concept that you're curious about, you wanna learn more about, holler at me and I'll do whatever I can to help. And in fact, those of you whose projects I know a little bit about, I couldn't help but find you in the margins of many of these pages. So it's exciting. It's super exciting to be here with you all tonight. With that said, um, let's get back to it. So here's where we were. With this um, wild, weird, wonky four part animal. Are you good to go with this or do you want to spend some more time? Are there other que- are there questions that you have about anything that's up on this graph? I'm happy to elaborate with examples. I'm happy to do whatever. I have a question. Go ahead, Maddie. Um, I was curious about what happens when the there is no paternal function or there's very little. Yeah, one of the things that can happen if there's no paternal function is psychosis. In fact, psychosis, one of Lacan's motivating efforts throughout his career is to try and find the origin of psychosis. This is one of the things that he was doing in his dissertation and that motivated him even past seminar three, which is on the psychoses, up through the 70s. He's still looking at the psychotic clinical structure and wondering, how the hell does this happen? Here's what he comes up with as an answer. He's building with Freud. He's working with Freud's German here. And it's a it's a kind of a stretch on what he's doing with Freud. But what he says is that there's a primordial symbolic moment. That's the moment that I talk about as prohibition, as the name of the father, as the no. Now, if that doesn't happen, or if it happens and then you deny that it occurred, 
a process that Lacan terms foreclosure, the result is psychosis, which according to Lacan is signaled by a series of ruptures in your relationship to the symbolic, to language. Usually the psychotic can be determined, according to Lacan, by different types of linguistic disturbances. And the reason why their language is disturbed is because they have no fundamental root in language, in the symbolic, because they have foreclosed that paternal function. That is the origin of psychosis, according to Lacan. That primordial process is what he describes as beyahum. And what I'm going to do here is I'm going to share my screen again and write some of this stuff up here um, just, just so that you can see see how this uh, would look. So don't worry, I've saved the diagram that we were just working with so we can now trash this thing and get a different one going. Let's go with this color. So you have this primordial symbolization that Lacan calls building on Freud. Beyahum, which unfortunately my this system is not quite fast enough to keep up with my handwriting. This is, in German, it means affirmation. What happens in primordial symbolization is that you accept the prohibitions that the paternal figure, well, whoever that is, brings into your life. You accept that in order to have your needs met, you have to use language. You affirm that. Now, in the case of psychosis, something different happens. You deny that process. You insist, in fact, that it hasn't happened at all. Ooh, wait a minute. Hold up, I have something even cooler to show you. I may already have this as an image. Hold up, y'all. Which will save us some work. Yes. Okay, check this out. Here are the terms in German ready for your approval and perhaps negation. So we can get rid of this. The first term is Beyahum. Can you all see this okay in pink? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. So this Beyahum here, this is a primitive affirmation of language and acceptance of language. And what you're accepting there fundamentally is the name of the father. Ververfung, I mean, Lacan's messing with a very weak, it's a very weak reading of Freud, but this means foreclosure. And it's what produces psychosis, according to Lacan. And what the psychotic forecloses is this very primitive affirmation. It's as simple as recognizing that language exists. So for instance, if somebody walks up to you and says, I'm Pigon Haseyo, okay, 
you might not speak Korean and you might not know what's being asked of you, but you sure as hell recognize that as a language. That primitive affirmation is a beyahun. You don't know what's being said to you, but you recognize it as language. It is addressed to you. It is calling for a response. Your response can be, I don't know what you're saying in English. But in any case, you've recognized and affirmed that a language is being spoken. Similarly, you can think about a disagreement that you might have with like uh, your roommate or friend or family member. Let's say you have a disagreement about who was the last one to do the dishes. And you're saying it was you who did it and thus your roommate's turn. Your roommate's like, fuck you, man. I did it last time, you know it, blah, blah, blah. You're gonna have a disagreement, okay? <clears throat> At no point in that disagreement, I hope, is someone gonna pull out a gun and pop a cap in your ass. There will be no stabbing. There will be no hands thrown. This won't probably won't even involve yelling. It'll just be a disagreement. <clears throat> All of those rules and assumptions about the fair movement through a disagreement is biyahun. They are affirmed and accepted even prior to the fight. The biyahun here is the rules of the game that you accept. And it suggests that implicit, presupposed by every disagreement, whether it is a physical conflict, the invasion of another country, or a disagreement about who did the dishes, is an implicit presupposed groundwork of rules and norms and expectations. In other words, a symbolic structure. That's why for Biyahum, we mean primordial symbolization affirmed. Now, what can happen after that? This is Freud's word for negation. This is his 1925 essay that Lacan makes a lot of and invites his friend Hippolyte to comment on that I mentioned earlier. Negation is not too different from the other German term that Hegel really liked, Aufheben, which you know if you read German that this is a really tricky term because it means at once to cancel and to preserve, to affirm and also deny. And Lacan's point here is that with Verneinung or negation, in order to negate something, you have to first determine that it exists in the first place to be negated. So Verneinung presupposes a primitive affirmation that the thing to be negated in fact exists. And then this, for those of you that know, is repression. And I have this set up in such a way to suggest that repression presupposes negation, which presupposes affirmation. All of which is denied to the psychotic. So Maddie, to answer your question, if the paternal function doesn't happen, or if it occurs and is foreclosed, psychosis is the result. Now wait for it. If the paternal function partially occurs, if the no of language of the primary caregiver was faint 
or weak or inconsistent. In other words, if castration is partial, the result is not psychosis, but another clinical structure. Perversion. So perversion is partial castration. Psychosis is no castration, and you guessed it, neurosis is complete castration. I think the most interesting one here is perversion. Lacan was really fascinated with psychosis. Freud was really fascinated with neurosis. I think, however, that Lacan's great insight is around how perversion operates. The sadist and the masochist, which fall under the category of perversion, are not interested in pain, yours or theirs. They're fundamentally interested in completing the partial castration that they underwent when they were coming up. They want to amplify the law. The sadist doesn't want to hit you with the whip. What gets them off is showing it to you, talking to you about how bad you've been, about how much you deserve this. What they're doing in this moment is amplifying the law that they only partially received through the paternal function. So Maddie, this is the second answer to your question. If the paternal function is partial or faint, one of the clinical structures that can emerge according to Lacan is perversion. And people who fall into this category of perversion are going to be people who are working very hard to amplify and shore up their weak relationship to the symbolic, to the law. And usually the way that they get that amped up is by injecting the law with jouissance, making you scream for it. But it's not about your pain. It's about the legislative function of prohibition that exists only weekly in their lives. I don't mean weekly as in every week. I mean faintly, shallowly, incompletely. This is what's going to set us up to talk about God's commandment that we enjoy. Lacan's tenant is that God is a sadist who gets off on moving subjects to anxiety by commanding them to do shit that they are unable to accomplish, like enjoy. Because what castration is, what the name of the father does, what no and prohibition does, is it denies you access to jouissance, to enjoyment. It simultaneously produces the real and marks for experience the violation of the symbolic known as jouissance. We'll come to that soon enough. But for now, that's the answer to the question, Maddie.
What else? What else do y'all have so far? I'm happy to answer any question that I can. And if I can't answer it, by God, I'll find somebody who can. What happens if the no comes from the maternal figure? Totally fine. That can happen if you have like, absolutely, yeah. If you have a, if you have like a single parent, you could have a parent who's bifurcated and has to play both roles. On the one hand would have to be the desirous other and then have to at the same time, perhaps a few minutes later, take that executive step to perform the paternal function. So for instance, let's, I, I think it's helpful to use examples here. Let's say you're raised by a single dad and um, you're sitting there and you're watching a, a show and it's a little bit scary. And your dad is looking down at his phone. Your dad is your primary caregiver. He's usually performing as such. He's looking down at his phone in a moment of scary stuff happening on the screen and he laughs out loud. And you think to yourself, what the hell is going on over there? I'm terrified and you're laughing. What on earth are you looking at? And the child immediately realizes that the dad is looking down at his phone at some cat video about a cat who lost all its fur and it's growing back in patches and it's really hilarious and amazing and wow, and what, a, what a terrific cat mom this person is to take care. It's inspiring and hilarious. That's the best story ever, right? One of the things that the dad could say in this moment is, oh, don't worry, honey, it's just grown up stuff. That is the paternal function, is to create a barrier that tells the child first, you don't have to worry about what this is. I've got this, it's just grown up stuff. And by introducing that cut or that barrier, in a way like contains the child. Now the opposite move here, Oliver, would be for the dad to push pause on the scary movie and then show the kid the fucked up cat video that the dad was just watching, which is probably a little bit too much information for the kid to handle. Because little kids are like, oh my God, what's wrong with that cat? That cat looks sick. It, the little kid will be like, daddy, is that cat gonna die? And then the dad, if they don't perform the paternal function, is going to be like, yes, Johnny, and you're going to die too. Someday, not now, Johnny, you don't know when it's going to happen, but someday you're going to die. You know what, Johnny, we've got a history of heart disease in this family, and I feel a little palpitation in my own chest right now as I look at this cat. Oh, no, Johnny, I think I might be dying right now. Now, if you're a little kid, and your parent is doing shit like this, I exaggerate for effect, right? The result is anxiety because all the feelings and experiences that the kid was having, which the kid thought they were having with their parent, are now completely overrun, overwhelmed. The fear that the child now has regarding the potential death of their primary caregiver, remember it's a single dad we're talking about here, so completely overwhelms the fear that they had while watching a movie that they know is fake, that anxiety is the result. So if there's just one person, one of the things that can happen is that that person can do a good job 
of keeping their desire in check and not letting it overwhelm the child by saying things like, that's just a grown-up topic. I'll explain it to you when you would get a little older. That kind of stuff can be helpful. It can perform that prohibitive, protective function that the paternal figure is designed to do. So you can have two people performing separate functions or one person doing both. That's an option here. What will usually happen as well, if you have a single parent, and here, I mean, I'm only just working with the logic that Lacan gives us here. If indeed the name of the father is primarily invoked by whoever plays the maternal part for you, you can imagine a situation where you've got a single parent who says things all the time, like when you act up, they look at the ceiling and say, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, here we go. As my grandmother always used to say to me, she said, oh, Lordy, every time I did something fucking wacko, she would invoke God's name. She would say, oh, Lord, look at this child. And then she'd usually command me to go get her fly swatter. But more often than not, she invoked the name of the Father, capital F, Father God. So in other words, you might not even need to perform the paternal function because you can invoke a third party just in your speech. That's why I gave you the examples of what would your mother think if she were here? Just wait until your father gets home. Baby Jesus does not appreciate you touching yourself like that. You see, so in this moment, a single parent occupying the primary caregiver role can invoke the authority of a third party that does the work of intervening in the imaginary dyad what Lacan calls the dual relation between the child and the primary caregiver. That's good parenting if you're an only parent. You can invoke the third symbolically. Don't forget, the paternal function is a symbolic function. The maternal function is an imaginary function. I say the paternal function is symbolic because it is what cuts in to the imaginary, introducing a gap or a cut that is the very condition of symbolicity. Now this is heady Lacanian shit, but this is actually what he's talking about. The foundation of language is an absence, a cut, a gap, a furrow, a lack. And that lack is best represented in the simple prohibition, no. Whatever your first word was, whatever the first word you heard and recognized as a word was, its function was prohibitive. Its function was as no. So without that, you have the basis for psychosis. If it occurs only weekly, you have the basis for perversion. And when it occurs completely and consistently, and the parent keeps it 300, as you heard me say, 
you have neurosis, <coughs> which has a very normalizing function. Of these three models, it's good to be neurotic. Nobody's ever normal in the Lacanian algebra. There's no such thing. Normal means like what's usual or expected. What's average. We got time for one more before we move forward into our next flurry. I have a, a quick question. Oh, he can go. I've asked the question before. No, that's okay. Let's make time for two. Go ahead, Ira. Um, you said that <clears throat> the moment of anxiety for neurotic is the same as the as the moment of jouissance for the pervert. Yes. Can you uh, just elaborate a little bit, please? Absolutely. I will be very quick on this because I want to spend a lot of time working on this. It's a great question. I'll be very brief now, and then we'll unfold it all later. Okay, Ira, so here it is. The neurotic fears nothing more than becoming the object of your desire. What brings the neurotic to anxiety is feeling like they, as a split subject, are the object of your desire. They don't like that. Well, why not? Because it's precisely what the ego can't handle. The ego can't handle the fact of castration. The ego can't handle the fact of split subjectivity. The ego can't handle the fact of dependence on the symbolic. And when anxiety comes up, it's usually because the big other is saying, show me your balls. In other words, forcing the ego to confront the part of its own constitution that it can't bear to confront, which is the fact that it's divided. In other words, that it's not the only agent in the subject. The subject is split. It has an ego and it has an unconscious. And what anxiety anxiety occurs when the split between ego and unconscious, the very bar that defines the split subject, becomes the object of desire for somebody else. This is what provokes anxiety. And we're going to work on some passages in Lacan that show this in a moment, in the neurotic. For the pervert, it's just the opposite. They want nothing more than to be your dildo. The pervert wants nothing more than to bring jouissance to the big other. The pervert thinks that their job on earth is to become your object of desire and even jouissance, even enjoyment. So the pervert rushes in to become the object and doesn't experience that moment as anxiety. The neurotic though, fears nothing more than to become someone else's object. And that's the that's the main deal here. That's why sex with neurotics is so fucking complicated sometimes. Because they want nothing more than to remain a subject. Right. When sometimes the best sex you can imagine is when you each objectify each other. The pervert rushes in. And this isn't to say that a neurotic can't have perverse fantasies. Even in this seminar, Lacan confirms that that's the case. You could, there can be times when you enjoy just being somebody else's dildo or somebody else's object. 
But usually the, the dilemma of sex with neurotics is that they're both so committed to being subjects right. that they never allow themselves to properly enjoy. The pervert, though, rushes right in there and says, how you want me? Not anxiety, but jouissance. We're going to come to this. And I think this is going to be- well, let, me, let me just, uh, what you just evoked to me. So what if uh, two perverts have sex? What is that like? Man. Well, it would depend. What if one was a sadist and the other was a masochist? Right, that's perfect. But I'm, what, what if you have, I, I'm talking just purely in terms of um, being objects for each other. Yeah. It seems like a New Yorker cartoon. It could, it could very well be. You could even imagine like the fetishist is kind of a quintessential pervert. What or if you have two, two Yeah, two, two dildos just sitting there, just doing nothing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and then saying something like, was it good for you? Exactly. But the pro, I guess that, that wouldn't even work as a caption. I would never win that contest because is it good for you is a neurotic question. Right. The pervert doesn't ask that. They can tell by your screams. And in fact, they don't even care. So um, it's it's interesting to think. I, I believe that um, in the I'm imagining three subtypes of perversion: sadist, masochist, fetishist. Mm -hmm. And you could imagine each of them coupling with a neurotic and having a pretty weird interaction, where the fetishist says, "No, no, um, leave your shoes on." Or no, no, leave your pants on, but take your shoes off. And the neurotic's like, I'm sorry, what? What the fuck are you asking me to do? Like, that's not my swimsuit zone. So I like to think that- um, What is the fetishist compensating for? Um, I don't know if they're what they're compensating for, but I can tell you how the fetishist works according to Lacan. And again, I'm not that kind of doctor. Well, let me rephrase the question. How does someone become a fetishist then? The same way that someone would become um, any pervert, according to Lacan, by having the name of the father pronounced weakly or faintly or incompletely. Their castration is incomplete. And so as a result, what they're looking for are ways to prop up the law that was only partially enunciated for them. The shoe or the pants on. I'm so sorry. I'm using that word compensation, but uh, is, I'm, I just if if it's not, it's not. Is the, is having the shoe on as a fetish or whatever the fetish is compensation? Yeah. Yes, it is. According to Lacan, the fetish object, whatever it's going to be, buttons, zippers, feet, whatever the case it is, is an attempt to recover the imaginary phallus that the paternal function said mommy doesn't have. Got it. So that's the deal here is that it's if the paternal function were completed, the subject would be neurotic and they would just accept that mommy doesn't have the phallus and I can't be it for her. Mm -hmm. And I'm just gonna get on with it. The pervert though did not have, according to Lacan, that paternal function completed. And as a result, they still harbor the hope that maybe mommy really does have a phallus. 
I don't know what it is, but I did hear daddy once refer to mommy's down there as her button. And so here the, the subject, the child might think, okay, it's about buttons. Buttons is the phallus. I knew she had one. You see what I'm saying? So the pervert always harbors the fantasy that they, especially the fetishist, I, I should say, that they could somehow arrive at the phallus. Via, and I, I like the fee symbol here, even though it looks like testicles and a penis hanging down, but it's nice because it's kind of an ambiguous term. Any object could fit there and become the fetishistic object. Can I ask if um, an analyst uh, was treating a, a, a fetishist, um, what, 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 would they be, what would the analyst be trying to accomplish? Man, that is such a tricky question, and it's one that plagues Lacanians constantly, I believe. Because some Lacanians don't believe that psychoanalysis of a Lacanian sort works on perverts. And, and I mean that in the clinical sense. I don't, I don't believe that. And in fact, some will say, and it doesn't work for psychotics either. I don't particularly believe that either. And I think you can read in Lacan ways that he has developed techniques for working with each. I can't speak to that part of the technique. I don't really know how an analyst, because I'm not one, would treat a pervert, but I know where to look for the answer. Where? It's in Bruce Fink's book, A Clinical Introduction to Lacanian yeah. Analysis. The latter part of that book has some pretty good discussions and elaborate case histories for fetishists in particular. And that's where I came up with the buttons reference. So I would think Fink is a good person. And if this is a topic that everybody's super interested in, we could absolutely holler at a clinician and bring them in here and ask them the question. But I would think that from a Lacanian point of view, if the pervert struggles to get the law amplified, the first step would be to make that known and certainly not to fall into the trap of being an overly emphatic therapist. That might be a start on this topic. Um, if, if we can just parse one more thing, and I would love to have an analyst uh, comment on this. So in my understanding, the analyst shows up as the big other, uh, l'autre for, for, the, for the analysand. And I understand how that would work um, with the neurotic. And then my understanding of a psychotic is they, they actually don't have um, uh, an unconscious uh, in some ways. So I kind of understand how if the analyst is showing up as l'autre, that works for the psychotic. So it would be interesting to hear in terms of um, uh, uh, subject and object, what role the um, analyst feels that they should play for the fetishist. Yeah. So particular. I see what you're saying about the psychotic, and I would just clarify that it's not that the psychotic doesn't have an unconscious. It's that uh, psychotics, it's like it's all unconscious. It's like the psychotic doesn't have anything else. 
So I'm so sorry. I'm going to butt up against that. I, I'm so I, I'm a therapist, not an analyst, and I've worked with schizophrenics, and it it's it's uh, it feels when I've worked with them um, that they um, they have to speak everything. It's like everything is a signifier. So that's what I kind of mean by don't have a subconscious uh, because everything is is just there. That comports. That lines up. Yeah. So foreclosure, according to Lacan, is this process where the name of the father is ejected from the unconscious. Right. And as Oliver, Oliver, what, what, what passage did you just throw up from Lacan's seminar on the psychoses? That could be useful here for, for Ira, um, topic of psychosis. It's kind of like the whole page, but... What, where is it? What is it? Uh, in seminar three, page 41, mm -hmm. what part in the subject talks analysis says it's the unconscious? Naturally, for this question to make sense, you have to have already admitted that the unconscious is something that speaks within the subject, beyond the subject, and even when the subject doesn't know it, and that says more about him than he believes. Analysis says that in the psychosis, this is what speaks. Yeah, so the unconscious is just constantly rattling on. Um, that, that lines up here. It still, though, leaves unanswered. Thank you, Oliver. It still leaves unanswered. Iris' question here is, what does the analyst do if they make the clinical diagnosis of perversion? And in particular, we're asking, like, what do you do with a fetishist who's struggling? And that's what would drive them to analysis, right? You don't show up because everything's going great and everybody's willing to play your button game. You show up because the button game has stopped working somehow. It no longer produces the same effect. So let's put that question down and I'll put it to an analyst and see what I get. And if I don't get anything super clear, I'll just invite them to come in and be ambiguous for us in person. Person. Yeah. Great. It's a terrific question. In the meantime, anybody who wants to follow up on this, I would again recommend Bruce Fink's clinical introduction to Lacan. Note in particular his case analysis of the dude with the button fetish. Because I believe that might answer some of these questions. But um, if I can't get a quick answer from a friend in San Francisco, I'll get Bruce directly and see what he says about this. Maybe even see if he can join us one of these times. Um, I love this question from Ira because it does put us on the path of perversion and neurosis relative to anxiety. And what we have so far, just to be clear, is that what produces anxiety in the neurotic allows jouissance in the pervert. And now we're going to see if we can support this. But first, hold up. Desiree, I believe you had a question too at the same time as Ira did. Do you want to follow up and pose your question? No, it's okay. I'm, I'll just follow up with an email. It's no problem. Okay. Anybody else before we take the next turn? Okay, in that case, this is wonderful. Try page 45. I'm gonna give you some passages here to just sit on and think about. And then we're gonna look at the graph of desire one more time. And I'm gonna try and trace out the pathway of perversion and the pathway of neurosis. So first, page 45, midway down the page, 
Do you see the paragraph that begins, it is anxiety? It is anxiety that I told you last time can come to be signaled at the place here designated by minus phi in parens, castration anxiety and its relation to the other. So this is that brown zero that I put over negative phi in the last diagram we were looking at. Do you remember this one? The point here is that anxiety is signaled when something shows up and is made to appear where that void represented by negative V used to be. Now scroll down a little bit, five lines to the neurotics experience. He says that the final term he reached in developing this experience, its point of arrival, the point at which it runs aground, the term for him is unsurpassable is castration anxiety. Now remember, when Lacan says castration here, he means prohibition, he means the no of the paternal function, he means alienation in a language that is not of your own making. It's unfortunate that he sticks with this castration term when what he really means is prohibition. So the action starts on 45, and then on 46 in the first full paragraph, we get to what truly brings the neurotic anxiety. What the neurotic shrinks back from is not castration. You see, the neurotic accepts castration. That's why they're neurotic. They have that primordial affirmation, beyahun, relative to castration. They say, okay, I accept this. If I'm going to get my needs met, I have to use words. Fine. Fine with me. And you'll notice that the primary caregiver has a really good way of inculcating this in the child. I don't understand you when you're crying. Use your words and the child realizes it takes longer if I cry about it. If I use my words, I can just get the food or the blanket, whatever, faster. They accept castration. That's not the problem for the neurotic. What the neurotic shrinks back from is not castration, but from turning his castration into what the other lacks. He shrinks back from turning his castration into something positive. You see, not a negation, not an absence, but something positive, namely the guarantee of the function of the other. The scary part, the anxious part that the neurotic experiences is feeling like the desirous other is after their castration. That they as split subjects have become the object, the positive legitimating object of the big other's desire. That's why the praying mantis example is relevant here. It's angst provoking because youth suspect that you might be the object of their desire. And that if you know about praying mantises, if you're wearing the male mask, you're about to be fuck killed. The female praying mantis is gonna fuck you and then bite your head off. And you don't know if that's gonna happen or not because you don't know which mask you're wearing. If you recall the image from page five. In this moment, what brings you anxiety is the possibility that you might be the positive object of their desire. You might be what they want. Now, 
I want to show you a different diagram here that might help us elaborate this. So I'm going to go back to our board. I'm going to save this one real quick if I can. And give us one more to work with. And again, I'm going to post all these images so you'll have them when you need them. Okay, so when we think about desire, little lowercase d symbolizes desire here. We know that desire has objects. We know that there are things that desire wants. You can list right now on your fingers all the things that you want. It might be a new car, it might be a new job, it might be more money. The question of what is very easily answered. Desire always has an object or a series of objects that it wants. Less discussed is the why, the cause of desire. Not what do you want, but why do you want? The cause of desire is always the same. It's the experience of lack. You can't want what you already have. You can only want things that you experience as lacking, which is why the basic job of advertising, of course, is to produce the experience of lack. You didn't know you needed a phone with a better camera until you saw the billboard of that cat that the owner took with an iPhone 13. It's the experience of lack that is the cause of desire. This is symbolized in Lacanian algebra with little a again. The same little a that we derived from negative phi. Now here's what happens in the case of anxiety. In the case of anxiety, you have this big other. We're gonna say desire of A, which is how Lacan writes it in that formula on page 25. So I'm just going to stick with this. Desire of a barred other. Okay, this is their desire, the desire of the big other. Now, let's say it operates according to the same logic of desire as ours. There's something that the big other lacks. And it has found it right here. This, the object cause of your desire, my desire, of the subject's desire, is in fact the object of the big other's desire. My lack is the big other's answer to the question, what do you want? This is what Lacan is getting at. What provokes anxiety in the neurotic is feeling like the cause of their desire is the object of the big other's desire. An answer to the question of what the big other wants. What they want is for you to signal your lack to them. 
That's what Lacan is working out here on pages 45 and 46. Really, I would suggest two of the fundamental pages in the first set of readings here. If you scroll down on 46, he says a bunch of wild ass shit about an immense fiction and asks, what does jouissance have to do with this? You can see it in the middle of the paragraph. Now check out this sentence that begins, this he can only ensure for himself on page 46, by means of a signifier. And this signifier is necessarily missing. The subject is summoned to this missing place to tender the exact change in the shape of the sign, the sign of his own castration. All right, this place where the signifier is missing, we've seen it before. This is the place where the signifier is missing. And remember what I showed you last time. This space where nothing is, in the, when anxiety occurs, something is made to appear here. And we can now see what it is. In fact, let's make it a little bit bolder. Can I ask one question, please? In just a moment. Hang on just one sec. This is what is made to appear there as the object of the big other's desire. And that's what Lacan is getting out here. You are summoned to the missing place to show a sign of your own castration. This is what is made to appear as an object, as a positive guarantee for the big other in the place where your gap, your cut, your little a was. Okay, that said, yes, ask a question, please. So when it says the subject is summoned to the missing place, to me, that reads as a fear of being becoming an object. Bingo. Yes, which is why that earlier example of the neurotic in the sexual act is compelling. The neurotic can't bear to think of themselves as anything except a subject. And what happens in anxiety is they are told that they are nothing more than an object for somebody else's desire. And that is not fun for the neurotic. It, um, for me, and I don't believe Volkan uses this word, it, it seems to be a question of agency. But the subject has agency, but the object doesn't. Yeah, that could work here. Okay. Agency is a fuzzy word in Lacan because he tends it, there's an automated function to agency <clears throat> that he likes that he likes. Um, but I see what you're getting at, Ira, and I think that it does work here. The neurotic fears that not only are they already dependent on a symbolic system that's not of their own creation, they've accepted castration, but now even the sense of containment and consistency and identity that the symbolic provides them. In other words, their sense of self as an ego, even that is now on the chopping block. And the big other says, it's not enough for me that you have accepted castration. I want you to show me, prove to me that you've accepted it. Prove to me, cut off that piece of skin from the tip of your dick and show it to me. I want to see it. Show me the foreskin. 
Nothing is more terrifying to the neurotic than that. The one thing that they have accepted in their life, castration, is now also about to be taken from them to become an object for somebody else's desire. Can I just uh, clarify that word, accept castration? For me, it seems, uh, or the language that, that as a psychotherapist, not an analyst, it's um, to assimilate uh, regulation or to become self-regulated. Is that is that analogous? Yep, absolutely. Got that it. works wonderfully here. Lacan is just pointing at the media by which you regulate. And he's going to say that that media is always linguistic, that right. we're using signifiers, whether it's language or symbols or images, whatever the case may be, we're always using the medium of symbolicity to regulate, of society, the norms and things by which we regulate. So I, I think that works terrific. And I'm so happy that you're here posing these questions because it, it keeps us on the narrow and keeps us focused on therapeutic horizons. So um, dynamite. How are you with this so far? Do you see what I've done here with the blue and the yellow? Anxiety for the neurotic is what happens when the, their lack or cause of desire becomes the object of somebody else's desire. Is that clear? All right, so I'm going to save this one again. I can't explain all of this as I would like um, because I also want to honor your time and I recognize that we've got about 25 minutes left. So I want to make a final push. And that push is to show you, I hope, what happens when the neurotic starts to feel anxious. And we can do that, I think, by tracing a pathway through the graph of desire. So what we're going to see now, does everybody see the complete graph in front of them? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the pathway of the neurotic, let's make it pink. We can start somewhere down here and move our way through pathway of the neurotic is going to go something like this. Now you could insert some loop-de-doos in here and you could almost certainly work around in here and do all this stuff. I'm being quick with this. The pathway for the neurotic is through the big other, which becomes the basis for their desire. Hence that lecture on desire for, of, and as. Now the prop of desire is fantasy. This is our split subject living their life in relation to whatever it is they think they lack, which is always what they think other people are into. Now, at this point, when fantasy fails, and it does fail, fantasy is interrupted by a signal of the other's desire. You see, that's what the, that's what the formula on page 25 shows us. 
it's unfortunate that Lacan doesn't make much more of it. But what's happening here at the level of zero relative to the desire of a barred other is that where fantasy used to be, you now have something else, not a mystery about what it is that you lack, that you think you need, but a fucking answer. The other shows up and says, I'm gonna tell you exactly what belongs in that place. In place of your fantasy, it's my lack. That's what we see on 25. And this provokes anxiety. Now what happens here is, when the fantasy is undermined, the neurotic subject is gonna take a different path. They can turn right and confront their anxiety by addressing the signal of the other's desire, but they don't. Instead, they turn back down this way and they come around here and they make another pass at desire. And here's how I want you to read this. When fantasy, my fantasy, is supplanted by a signal of the other's desire, I return to a version of the other that is not barred, but instead whole. And here's how the conversation goes. Listen, big other, I know you have all kinds of desires. Why don't you just pick one the way you used to do when I cried? Pick one the way you always picked a blanket whenever I cried. Pick one of your desires and tell me what it is. This is the math theme for drive. But this D is the demand of the big other. So here it is again. When the neurotic's fantasy is challenged by an encounter with a desirous praying mantis other, they usually suspend any encounter with this individual and instead return to a fantasy of the big other as whole, as having all the answers. And instead of dealing with anxiety, they try and work the big other in the direction of a demand. This is precisely what Lacan is getting at in the early 50s. <clears throat> and by early 50s, I mean pages 52 and 53. In fact, start at the bottom of 51. Section three. You all there? The key term here is demand. Notice three lines up. The true object sought out by the neurotic is a demand that he wants to be asked of him. He wants to be begged. The only thing he doesn't want is to pay the price. Now you can compare that element of paying the price to the passage on 46 where Lacan is saying, not only is he summoned to the missing place, but he's asked to tender the exact change. I'll let you play with that one. Here though, the important thing is, the neurotic, rather than deal with not knowing what the other wants, instead says, please tell me what it is you want. Issue a demand. 
51 and 52 are about this. The neurotic, he says in the middle of 52, he wants you to ask something of him. And then on 53, Lacan gives it to us. First full paragraph, last sentence that begins on the contrary. Do you all see it? It's about 10 or 12 lines down. It's to the extent that every form of demand is exhausted to its full term, to the bottom of the barrel, up to and including the D zero zero of demand, that in the end, we see the castration relation appear. Castration is found inscribed as a relation at the far limit of demand's regressive cycle. The pink arrow before you is demand's regressive cycle. Why is it regressive? Because it loops around and returns to a previous passageway. It loops through here and takes a regressive turn. This is demand's regressive cycle. Castration appears there as soon as and insofar as the register of demand is exhausted. Now, when the register of demand is exhausted, that means that the other has issued every possible demand. I want this, I want this, I want this. And when you get to the bottom of that barrel, Lacan says on page 53, the only thing left for the other to demand of you is a signal of your own castration. And that is a terrifying place to be because what it does is it forces the neurotic back to the very encounter that they tried to avoid in the first place. The neurotic tried to avoid anxiety by turning left at failed fantasy. And again, I know I'm asking a lot of you because I'm just using these terms like they're regular words. In the end though, they were unable in this model to avoid giving the big other what it is that the big other at the bottom of its demand cycle truly wants, which is a signal of our castration. This is the regressive cycle of demand in which the neurotic engages. So pink here equals neurotic, which makes, which gives us some very easy work to do with the pervert. The pervert, when fantasy fails, rushes at the big other and says, I'm absolutely happy to be the object of your desire. Perversion has no problem making this move and they do not feel anxiety about it. Instead, they feel jouissance. They actually enjoy playing that part. Whereas for the neurotic, it's a highly anxious place to be.
if we wanted to make a final turn, it would be now to the commandment in Ecclesiastes to enjoy. But let's pause for a second there and field some questions. This has gone by fast, which is why I'm happy we're recording this. You can revisit this stuff. And you can go through with a dictionary like Dylan Evans' Introductory Dictionary to Lacanian Psychoanalysis and look up all the terms I've been using and holler at me if I can help you clarify them so that these sentences that I've been speaking, you can parse them out and see what I'm up to. And by extension, what Lacan is up to on the pages we've been reading. I'll leave the, the chart up now so we can keep looking at it and imagining. What can I clarify? What can I say more or less about? Yeah, Ira, go ahead. So what would constitute a signal or symbol of castration? And I'm fuzzy on whose point of view uh, that would be from. Is it from uh, the subject or is it from l'autre? Brilliant. I think that it could appear in many different ways. Here's what I would suggest based on the reading we have so far from Lacan. If we take seriously this dictate on pages 79 forward where God says enjoy, but we know that it's impossible for us to satisfy this commandment because we are castrated. In other words, because we always have an obstacle to enjoyment. Jouissance is prevented, staved off, blocked by castration. So when the God here, the big A, commands us to enjoy, we can't help but feel and display that we are unable to enjoy like a God. And yet we still believe we should. In other words, when we try and satisfy the commandment to enjoy, we stumble. We can't do it. And in stumbling, we show the castration. When you could you replace castration with self-prohibition or self-regulation? Because it, it just seems then it, to be a, a, this perpetual internal conflict where we've assimilated castration or regulation. But what we also want is opposite, which would be jouissance. Yeah, I think that it would be um, a, some sort of a display of a struggle of a difficulty, of an ego, in other words, that is not so sure of itself. So what the big other is trying to do in this moment, if we can ascribe some intention here, is to provoke in us some sort of display that we're not all together. In other words, that there is a part of us that is unaccounted for by the ego. And it's not just the unconscious, but also the minimum irreducible distance between my ego and my unconscious that allows me to have two selves, a split subjectivity. And so it would be anything that calls attention to that. So it could be, for instance, let's say you have somebody with a very active ego, and let's say they've had lots of plastic surgery. And let's say that you can tell that they are older than they are appearing to look. You can see where I'm going with this. Back up into a more everyday example, where you have people posting images of themselves, let's say on their faculty profile, let's say on their dating profile, 
pictures of themselves from an earlier age. Pictures of themselves as they still at some level think they look or wish they looked. And then you meet this person in public on a date and you almost don't even recognize them. You're like, yo, you look absolutely nothing like your pictures. What the fuck? Right? We have terms for this. We have derogatory terms for people who throw up images of themselves online that don't comport with who and what they actually look like today. Now, if you go on one of these dates and you see somebody and they're like, oh, hey, it's you. I'm over here. And you respond and say something like, oh, sorry, I didn't recognize you. You look nothing like you do in your pictures. You know how that person's going to respond. There's that moment of hesitation, that moment of anxiety, because the question now is, do you mean that I'm more handsome or more beautiful than I appear online? Which would be good, because that means I'm wearing the female praying mantis mask. Or do you mean that I'm a hideous sack of shit now that looks nothing like the amazing lure I threw out on Tinder for you? Not knowing is the cause of anxiety. In this moment, you, by saying you look nothing like your picture online, are the desirous big other. You are the female praying mantis who is rolling up on somebody who doesn't know what mask they're wearing. And the result is anxiety because this person is going to stammer, they're going to stumble, and they're probably going to say something like, what, 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 what do you mean? Or maybe they'll make a joke out of it. This, if we were playing the anxiety game, if you were somebody who got off on provoking anxiety in another person, would be that signal, Ira, of their split subjectivity. Of the fact that you have called them out. You have called out their split subjectivity, their split between their in real life appearance and their online appearance. The part of them that looks fabulous online but shitty in person or vice versa. But when you call that out, that provokes anxiety in them. The reason why Lacan turns to the sadist in this moment is because it's the sadist who gets off on provoking anxiety in other people. The sadist doesn't get off on hurting you. The sadist gets off on making you squirm. The sadist, if they enjoyed hurting you, they wouldn't tell you about their diabolical plan to take over the world while they're torturing you. They would just torture you. If they were going to kill you, they would just do it. They wouldn't need to hang the damsel in distress over a pool of sharks wearing laser beams on their head, tie you to a chair, and then slowly lower her into the sharks. The sadistic villain, mustache-twisting, evil, stereotypically evil being, 
is acting in this way, performing sadism, because what they get off on is not murdering your love and not murdering you, but watching you anxiously not know what's going to come next. They get off on your anxiety. That's why the sadist is queued up after this discussion. First, we get this emphasis on God telling you to enjoy, exclamation point. But you can't because you're castrated. Jouissance is off limits. And so you stumble when you try. Ecclesiastes, if you read, commands that life is pointless, you're going to die anyway, and you don't know when it's going to come. So go out and have some fun, y'all. Drink some beers, fuck your partner, jerk off in the fountain, whatever the case is, whatever gets you off, go out and go out there and have some fun, man. Just do it, God says. Okay, so God in this moment, though, knows that you just can't. You can't help but worry about tomorrow. You can't help but do your work and feel shitty about it sometimes. Sometimes you don't want to fuck your wife. You feel me? Ecclesiastes specifies, go fuck your wife, you know. That's why I'm using that. I'm just throwing it out to be heteronormative. There are all these barriers to the types of enjoyment that Ecclesiastes commands. This is why we start to get the inkling that for Lacan, God is not just any pervert. God is a sadist. God is the person on the date who shows up and says, you look nothing like your picture, and then waits and watches to see how you respond. It's not about hurting you. It's about causing you to feel anxious. So these are two examples, Ira, of how this subject would be made to show up as an object of the other's desire in anxiety. If you want to see what this is all about, it starts on page 104, and I don't think it's going to end. In fact, I predict that as this seminar goes on, it'll still be about anxiety, but there's going to be a lot in here about sadism and masochism. And this is one of the reasons why, is that the desirous big other, who is fundamentally unchecked and getting off on your anxiety, is a sadist. Check out page 104, the paragraph that begins, it is not so much. You can see it for yourself. It's not so much the other party's suffering that is being sought in the sadistic intention as his anxiety. I noted this with the little sign, dollar sign next to a zero. In this formula from my second lesson of this year, that's page 25, by the way, the formula we've been working with. I taught you to read it as a zero, not the letter O. This is you as a split subject coming face to face with the zero that is the signifier of the barred other. 
the signifier of their desire. The zero. You see why he chooses the term zero, right? Zero is a signifier that represents nothing, which is why it's the perfect signifier for the big other to put in the place of minus phi, of little a. Zero is a signifier that replaces nothing. You, I'm so sorry, you just said that the big other puts the zero there. Yeah. That would be a signal of the big other's desirousness. Here in the graph of desire, it's the upper left hand, upper left hand corner here. So um, the capital S next to the parens with the A in it. I'm going back to screen share so y'all can see this. This right here is a signifier of the big other's lack. Now, this can be anxiety provoking in a lot of ways. It doesn't have to be all fancy like we've been talking about it. So you can think about this in terms of a primary caregiver relationship to a child, where up to a certain point, you might think that mommy or daddy knows everything. Hell, you might even still have a parent. My dad is this way. You can ask him any question in the world, and even and especially when he doesn't know the answer, he will just straight up make up some shit. He'll just say stuff. You know he's bullshitting. You know he doesn't have an answer, but he can't allow himself to be an other lax. He always wants to be this other, a whole other who always has an interpretation and a meaning to give you. That's different than the one up here. This happens in a child's life when they recognize that their parents did the best they could, that they were incomplete, that they weren't perfect, that they had their own issues. When you can let your parents off the hook while still keeping them on. This is when you accept that they are barred others just like you. And I would just suggest as we look toward the end of tonight's session, that this is exactly why Lacan brings up love on page 108 at the bottom. It is not for nothing that I'm always drumming it into you that to love is to give what one hasn't got. That's all you need right there. To love for Lacan is to give someone else what you yourself don't have. Now you can recall what I said earlier about being and having and make a good mess of this situation. Don't do it, just be simple. What you don't have, you lack. And in love, you share this with someone else. This is a theory of love that translates into a kind of radical acceptance. You know that you lack, and you give this knowing as acceptance 
to another person and say, you know what? It's okay for you to be incomplete too. The math theme for love, if we were gonna play around with it, would look very different from that of anxiety. The anxiety formula that Lacan is giving us here, where you are thrown up against a signifier of the other's lack. That's not love. Love is where you, as a split subject, can live your life in relation to somebody else who's also split. Giving what you don't have is to share lack with somebody else, which is to say you accept that they are lacking too. Now what that means, well, let's back up and say what it doesn't first. It doesn't mean that their lack is your object of desire. The fact that they lack is not what gets you off. That's not what you desire in them. If you did, welcome to an anxious codependent relationship because you know they're going to reciprocate. Anxiety is what happens when your partner's lack becomes the object of your desire where you start to get off on their missteps, on their inadequacies. Your grandparents were probably this way, where one is always nagging the other. Stereotypically, the grandfather nagging the mother, the grandmother for her poor cooking, always marking her inadequacies. And her saying, oh, pappy, knock it off, or whatever the hell she used to say. Or your grandmother knocking your stereotypical grandfather for not being the man he used to be. Or constantly remarking, showing pictures of being like, your grandfather was so handsome as he's sitting in the other room withering. Notice how her voice is so, so handsome. That's addressed not at who he used to be and not at who he is but at the difference between those two states. What gets her going is his utter awareness that he's not who he used to be. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music. 